Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. And, and uh, as the kids head out and go to, yeah, we can clap for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. And as the kids head off uh, to Sunday school, I just want to reintroduce myself for those of you that might not have met me already or came in a little later this morning. I'm Bruce Struxma. I'm the senior pastor here at uh, Watertown Evangelical Free Church. And we have been flowing kind of chapter to chapter to chapter through Hebrews in this limitless series, looking at chapter one and then chapter two and chapter three. For those of you who may have been following along then, you might have looked at the reading schedule or you might have looked at um, you know, just the sequence of events or maybe the screen right now, which says we're in Hebrews five. And I would encourage you if you have a Bible, whether that's a digital device or uh, a paper one or whatever to, to turn to Hebrews five, but also for those that maybe were really paying attention last week, you may have noticed that I ended before the end of the chapter. We've kind of been covering the whole segment of each chapter. And I, you know, you might be asking yourself, why did he skip those last couple of verses, right? Why did he skip? The last? I, I'm sure several of you were debating this around your dinner tables this week. Just, you know, really like, man, what is his deal? He's Okay, none of you noticed. I'm aware of that. But we skipped a couple of verses. And, and the question is why? Well, we've talked about pushing into God's word, about who wrote it and how we don't know and how that's okay that we don't know and how we can wrestle with that. Well, I would encourage you as well to remember that as we talk about God's word being inerrant, without error, uh, that doesn't pertain to, and maybe you've heard me say this before, the chapter numbers or the headings that your Bible has put in. Like those were added later by people and um, people make mistakes. And this is a spot where I'm gonna stand and say, as the one who gets to decide what passages we're doing in the sermon, I think they got it wrong. I, I think chapter five should have started two verses earlier in chapter four. And um, you can, you know, if you really are passionate about this concept, I will, you know, Come to my office this week, we'll get some coffee, we'll wrestle it out, we'll, we'll debate. But I think it should have started with the last couple of verses. I think it should have, you know, verses 14 and 16 should really, of chapter four, should really have been the first two verses, three verses of chapter five. That's my personal opinion. And so I, we're gonna do it that way this morning. We're gonna look at those verses first. And so I'm gonna start by reading the first word of, of verse 14, therefore. Therefore, which uh, a little hint I learned in college, whenever you see in scripture the word therefore, you should stop and ask yourself, what is it there for? Why did they, because they're referencing the stuff they've already covered. Therefore, we need to pause and ask, why is it there? What is it there for? And I think it's there because he is shifting. The author is shifting their focus. They've established throughout the first few chapters the humanity of Jesus and the necessity of him being human. And they're making a shift here in the book. They're making a shift. And so, so the author is going to unpack a little bit where we've been. And I thought it's appropriate that we do the same thing. Let's unpack a little bit where we've been. And so we'll look back at the last few weeks and say, therefore, since God's plan is limitless, we need to remember that Jesus came as the son of God to fix our broken world. That's where we were at chapter one. Our God, his plan is limitless. Chapter two, therefore, since God's holiness, 
is limitless. We need to remember that Jesus came as the perfect, fully God, fully man, sacrifice for our sins. Therefore, since God's faithfulness is limitless, we need to remember that God is faithful despite our lack of faith. And therefore, since God's grace is limitless, we need to remember that our faithful God has given us his undeserved favor. And, and I think the author is about to unpack all of these things. And it, we've, we've talked about all these attributes of God. We've talked about who God is. Therefore, and he's going to kind of give us not only where we've been, but where we're going kind of as this transition. And, and again, if I could step even further out into, you know, theological no man's land um, at the risk of, of having angry letters show up in my inbox tomorrow, um, I would even maybe tweak the, the next verse, verse 14. Because I think he's unpacking, the author, where we've been. And I, I think pointing to all the things we've talked about. And so I'll read it correctly later. <laughs> I'm going to read my translation first. Therefore, since our faithful God has a perfect plan to use a holy sacrifice of grace, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. That's how I would say it. If I was writing it to you. Now, I'm not the author of Hebrews and he wasn't writing it to you. But that's how I would say it. Instead, what the author says is this, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And here I think is our thesis statement for this morning. Verse 16, this is where we're going. This is the transition. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us approach the, th the throne of God's grace with confidence. Because this morning we're gonna talk about how our access to God is limitless. Our access is limitless. We are getting an upgrade. Maybe, uh, maybe you have gotten an upgrade recently. Maybe you upgraded your phone. Maybe you, you know, upgraded your internet. Maybe you upgraded your car. Recently, our family, I talked about this, upgraded our vehicle from a minivan to a 12-passenger van. We got an upgrade. That's the idea we're getting here is we are getting an upgrade. And anytime you get an upgrade, our access is being upgraded. Anytime you get an upgrade, it's wise when you're considering whether you take this upgrade to evaluate the old system, the old way, the old vehicle, the old access, and then go, is this one really better? And so our author is going to unpack not only the old covenant, but the new covenant. I can almost hear, you know, maybe, maybe if you remember back, some of you who are, you know, my age and older, to before there was streaming services, Netflix and Disney Plus and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it was two in the morning and you couldn't sleep and you went and turned on the TV, you inevitably got like the OxyClean infomercial guy. And what was the, the phrase they always said in those infomercials? But wait, there's more. Not only are you getting one bottle, you're getting two, but wait, there's more. We'll also throw in this piece of junk you don't need, right? But wait, there's more. I can almost hear that, that tone, that excitement, that energy in our author. There's more. Your access has been upgraded. It's not the old access anymore. You've gotten an upgrade. So all, all in all, our passage this morning is rather short. It's not super long, but don't let its brevity fool you. It is dense. 
It is full of information. Again, I won't have time this morning to unpack it all, so I'd encourage you to read through it on your own. Trust the Holy Spirit to speak. Listen to God's word. But it's deep. And so we're gonna, un, we're gonna do our best to look at some of the things in it this morning. And the first thing I wanna do is, like I said, we're gonna evaluate the old system. We're gonna look at the old covenant. The old covenant access through the high priest. The old way of doing things was the high priest. That was our old access point. That was our old way of doing it. And so our author starts there with that focus because the audience of Hebrews knew that system. That system was ingrained in them. This idea that we talked about a couple of weeks ago about going to the temple regularly to make a sacrifice. This was the old covenant, the old way of doing things. And sometimes we get so stuck in a rut of the old way that we forget to think that there might be a better way. We start doing things the same way, the same way, the same way. And we think there's no better way to do it than the way I'm currently doing it. And how many of us have had that where we think we're doing it the best way and suddenly somebody shows up and goes, you know, there's a, there's a better option. We were, as we were remodeling in the office upstairs, we came across some uh, clip art books. Now, I don't know if any of you remember clip art books. Um, I won't ask you to raise your hands because uh, that would, would date us all. But back in the, we'll say, late 80s, what you would do if you wanted to make snazzy publication graphics is you would go and buy a book of clip art. And it was literally little pictures you would clip out of the book and tape into your new document before you made a copy so that the graphic was in the book. Again, I won't have you raise hands, but that was the old, imagine if we were still doing it that way. I went to my kids, I brought the book home and I set it on the counter and I said, I said, how do, let's say you're making a presentation for school. How would you go about putting a graphic into your, and they were like, well, dad, you, you go to Google and you type in the thing you want and it shows up and you copy and paste it in. Like, imagine if I said, no, no, from now on, you're still doing it this way. You're gonna go and get a book and you're gonna cut it out and you're gonna tape it in and make a copy and then scan it and send it to your teacher. The old way, sometimes we need to go back and the author here is encouraging people to go back and evaluate how they used to access God. And it almost reads like a job description. Almost like a pros and cons list, if you will. And so now we're in chapter five in the first four verses. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. This was the way, this was the only option. And so the author is kind of talking about who this high priest was and how they got to be there. And there's really two things that they're gonna highlight about the old system, the old way, as we evaluate the way we used to access God. And he starts with the selection of the high priest. How did they select this person? How did they pick this person to be the high priest? Before we get at the root of what they did, how did they get there? And it's bookended with, with two ways that, that the person is selected. Right, right at the beginning of the passage, there's part of it, and at the end of the passage, there's another part of it, and both are significant. It starts with their human lineage. They are selected from among the people, right? Among the people. 
This is not an overseer. This is not a, a higher than, better than, worse than conversation. The, the high priest was selected as a person. They are a person among the people. They're human lineage. They are a human person. Now, we know there was a little bit more to it. They had to be of the line of Aaron. Uh, they had to be a Levite. They had to be all these things. But they were selected from among the people. And notice that they were selected, not, a, not, not you know, self-selected. Like, we don't necessarily pick up on that. We, we know people who self-select. The language here is not quite so open-ended. Like, yeah, you know, go ahead, raise your hand if you want to be the priest. There was not that kind of a, a selection, not that kind of complete openness. They had to be selected from among the people, though. And why is this important? Well, as I, I found a quote that I really love from one author by the name of David Allen, who says, whereas the prophet speaks on behalf of God to men, talking about the Old Testament prophets, their job was to communicate from God to men, the priest functions to bring men to God. That's their role. They had to bring people. And you can't bring people to God if you're not from among the people. You had to be from among the people. There was this necessity that you are standing with them, right? That's kind of the idea we're seeing here is, is every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people. And verse four, and no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so we see this selected from among the people and called by God, but we see the second thing that a priest was supposed to do in the middle, to intercede. Their role is this intermediary between God and man. We didn't have full access to God. We had to go through this priest. If you were alive in Israel before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you had to go through somebody. You could not access God straight away. You needed this intermediary. You needed somebody to stand in the gap. You needed this person. And there's a balance to be struck in the human priest, right? They need to be among the people and therefore they should have some level of humility. I am among the people. I'm one of you. I'm not better than you. Um, but they also need to hold to a standard. They were held to a higher standard. And we can all relate. We all have people that we know in our lives who don't do this well. They don't strike that balance well. There are times in my life where I don't strike that balance well, where, where somebody crosses an imaginary line that I have deemed uncrossable, and therefore they're out. And we can do that spiritually, and we can do that socially, we can do that relationally. You have crossed the line, you're out, right? And then we also see people that are a little bit too... Um, willing to go along with somebody else. They're willing to sacrifice too much. And this priest has to strike this balance. And we see the priest in the Old Testament failing on both sides. In scripture, we see this human person trying to be this intermediary of both holding to God's standard and calling people to God and trying to ride in this tension of both being uh, the access and holding to truth. And we see Eli in the Old Testament being too tolerant of his son's evil excesses. We see time and again a tolerance for the temple being opened up to pagan worship. And we also see the temple being shut on the other side, shut to those who it should have been open to. We see Jesus calling that out in, in the money changers in the temple. 
In Luke 18, 11, the Pharisee stands up and prays and the tax collector stands up and prays and Jesus shows the, the problem with shutting the temple in somebody's face. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And so there's a tension to be, to be navigated here in this old covenant and we relied on a human to do that. And they failed regularly. And, and as a human, I fail regularly on navigating those distinctions. Where do we uh, get too tolerant and go, you know what, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. And where do we shut the temple doors in people's faces saying, you are not good enough for my God. And there's a tension in here. And I think it's very significant that the last time we see the physical temple in the biblical narrative in Acts, we see its doors being shut in the faces of people coming to God. In Acts 21, verses 27 through 30, when the seven days were nearly over, and this is the seven days Paul has come back to Jerusalem and he has, he has done a vow and he's ready to go into the temple and make a sacrifice even though he knows he doesn't have to anymore He's doing it to try and mend some fences and he's going into the temple in accordance with the law. When the seven days were over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought some Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. And that's the last time we see the temple. That's the last vision we get of this old covenant is, is it's shutting the doors in the people's faces who need to see God. So I ask in our old covenant ways, where are we still living in that old covenant? Where are we trying to be the one who stands as the intermediary using our own human judgment to say, this is in, this is out, and I get to decide. Where are we still living in that old covenant? And, and I don't mean just culture, I mean personally. You know, it's real easy to stand in the church and go, they're out, they're out, they're out, out there, and call out culture. And I, I know culture is walking away from God in some places, in many places. And we as Christians are called to judge the actions, but we need to start with ourselves. Where are we being too lenient in our own self? Where have we gone along with culture and we haven't even realized it? When Paul lists these things that we shouldn't do, we pick out the ones we don't do and go, aha, see? But what about the ones we do? What about the ones that we as a church have gone along with? Greed, apathy, busyness, gluttony. Where are we too tolerant of ourselves? Where have we said, you know what, it's fine for me because you don't know my schedule. You don't know my life. These things are hard. Where are we too tolerant? And on the other side, where are we closing the gates of the temple in people's faces? And our passage drives us home at the end that as people who fall under a human lineage, we should relate to that priest. And it says, who offers sacrifices first for himself. 
We should come into these conversations with humility, acknowledging that we need grace as much as anybody else, like we talked about last week, that we are fallible, broken people who make mistakes. And there might be some times where I've looked at culture and I've looked at the world and I've shut the door in people's face and I've opened it up in spaces where I haven't. And I cannot navigate that perfectly because I am broken. And if I know there are places that I am wrong, where's the humility on my part to say, I might be wrong? I mean, I would like to think that if I knew I was wrong about something, I would change my mind. Um, But I don't always know where I'm wrong. I'm doing the best I can, but I'm a broken person. And so we start with this understanding of where we are at. If we try and do it in the old covenant and we rely on ourselves, we are going to fail. We're going to fail repeatedly. I fail all the time. And so the author of Hebrews makes a significant shift here, not just in our passage this morning, but in the entire book. Moving from a focus on Jesus Christ, who is fully human, which he has established, the author has established in the first, you know, several chapters, moving to a focus on Jesus Christ as his role as our new high priest, taking on that new covenant. He is showing the superiority of the new covenant, and so we now go with the author to the new covenant, where our access is no longer through a human high priest, but our access is through Christ. We are getting an upgrade. We are going from dial-up to full-on fiber optic. We are going from, you know, um, your old Nokia you know, texting to full-on 5G. We are going from the Wi-Fi they have on an airplane that lets you do nothing to complete access. We're getting an upgrade. And that is why we see we now have this full access. When Jesus dies, there's a reason that the temple uh, curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. It is complete access now. Jesus dies and it says in the gospels that the temple curtain was torn. That was tearing open what separated the people from God. That was the Holy of Holies that we talked about with the Day of Atonement that they could go into one time a year by tearing it open and saying, you no longer need to go through a human person. Your access is full and wide open. We've gotten an upgrade. Verses five through 10. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obeyed him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so the same criteria the same criteria that we use to look at the high priest, we're going to look at the author is going to look at with Jesus, but we're going to see the significant upgrade. The same criteria, the selection of Jesus. He lists the selection of Jesus, but it's fundamentally different. Instead of focusing on Jesus as his human lineage, because again, his humanity is, is established, now it's his connection to God. The start of our focus here is the selection by God. With the human high priest, um, the, 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 the role was from among the people was first. And here it is different. Here his selection by God is first. 
It's his first qualification. And then the author moves to the lineage, reverses it. By connecting him to Melchizedek, which for those of you that don't know Melchizedek, Melchizedek in the Old Testament is the priest that Abraham offers a sacrifice to. So again, uh, this is kind of a subtle thing if you don't have the picture of Israel's history in your head. So let me kind of help put some pieces there in case you don't know it. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Levi. Levi is the father of the priesthood. So we're multiple generations before the priesthood is established in their earthly lineage. God much later will say the Levites will be the priests. So we're prior to all of that with Abraham, the, the, the root of the Israelite people. And he is offering a sacrifice to somebody that is not from his family, to Melchizedek. This is after he rescues Lot and he makes a tithe to this other priest of God. And so when the author ties Jesus to Melchizedek, he's saying his lineage usurps, is, is greater than, is higher than, is before the earthly lineage of all the priests. He's tying him to eternity because we don't know Melchizedek's history. And we'll unpack this more in a couple of weeks when the author goes into this in greater detail. But he is a priest before Abraham. And so the author of Hebrews in pointing to him is pointing to God's, Jesus, godly lineage before Abraham. And Jesus himself calls this out. Jesus says this in John 8, 58. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he is claiming God's name there. He's saying before Abraham was, I am God. And we see I am, and we don't always pick up on that as God's name, but they did, which is why if you read that passage in John 8, they respond by trying to kill him for heresy. And they say, you claim to be God. He sure did, because he is. And I think we forget, so, so now he has this eternal lineage, he has this forever role as priest, and I think we sometimes forget how significant forever is, because forever is hard for us to comprehend. We know what the term means, we understand timelessness as a concept, but I think it's hard for us to really understand what that means. And here it kind of carries a dual meaning. Forever in the terms of time, yes, his role is forever. He has no term limit. His tenure in office, unlike the other priests, has no time limit, but also forever in, a, in, in, in effect, in how it functions. The previous priest had to offer the sacrifice year after year after year after year. Jesus offered it once and it's good forever. We have this dual understanding, not only is he forever in terms of his tenure, but in terms of his effect. He is forever. And so we know his empathy for us is real because he now intercedes for us. And unlike the high priest who intercedes in this, in this spot of a broken person, Jesus intercedes perfectly because he is perfect, but that doesn't mean he doesn't understand what we're going through. It says in the passage that he, he had fervent cries and tears. Jesus feels our pain. This last week, uh, I had the opportunity to go and teach the TNT kids in Iwana about the death of Jesus. And we talked about how it was a physically arduous experience. It was painful. It was awful. And we talked about that physical pain and how, how Jesus wrestled with that pain to the point where he sweat drops of blood. But I, I pointed out to them, and I think, the author here is pointing out to us 
that, that Jesus in that anxiety, in that pain leading up to his death, isn't probably anxious about the same things we are. Sure, I think as a human, in, in, in human form, he is nervous about the pain physically, but I think he is more focused on the pain spiritually. Me, as a human being, I would be focused on the physical pain and trauma. I'd be focused on how other people would be judging me and seeing me. And I think we can see in his prayer that Jesus is way more focused on the separation he is about to experience between him and God. That spiritual anxiety and pain. And so he can empathize with us in ways that we don't even understand because he is more aware of how much that sin damages our perception. And so now our, the one who intercedes with us does so, so much more than a human can. Because I can empathize with your pain and your weakness only in so much as I understand it. Jesus, being God, fully understands it in ways that we even don't ourselves. And so he fully empathizes. And the atonement through Jesus is eternal. But do not miss the clause at the end for all who obey him. We now have the ultimate upgrade but there's a transaction fee, right? You're waiting for it, what's the catch? When you hear that guy on TV, but wait, there's more. Okay, but what's the catch? But kind of building that same analogy like that guy on TV, I know a great deal like this, you might think would cost you $300. And he keeps going down and down and down and you just realize that the thing he's selling you is cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Unlike this, what we're seeing is an incredible deal with a really, 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 really low price. And that price is obedience for all who obey. Who obey in turning over our lives to God by calling on God for his grace. And so the author moves on in verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And so to be clear, if you find this content confusing, if you find doctrine and the Bible confusing, that doesn't mean you are not a believer. That doesn't mean you are not mature. That does not mean you are not walking with Christ. But if we stop trying, if we stop trying, that's when we're in trouble. The point is not that full understanding is a sign of a mature believer. Instead, the sign of a mature believer is the pursuit of godly understanding. And so we must seek to access God as mature believers. We must continually be in that pursuit. Yes, in the moment that we turn to God and say, I need your grace to cover my sin, we are saved. We're not talking about whether or not you are saved. We're talking about whether we're continuing to pursue God. Look at the critique here from the authors. It is not how dare you be young. It is how dare you stop trying. Why are you staying where you are? The author chides them for no longer trying to understand, not for not knowing. What that means for us is that it is about becoming more and more like Christ here on earth. 
not about whether or not we receive salvation. We know salvation comes through grace, through faith alone, period. And so we hit that moment where we go, I have put my life in Jesus' hands. I trust him to pay for my sins. But if we stay there, we are not pursuing God. And we need to continue through the rest of our life, keep taking the next step and the next step and the next step. If you have a little baby uh, born in the hospital, they come in, right? The doctors come in and in the first few weeks they check over that baby and they're looking for basic things. Can they keep themselves warm? Can they feed themselves when offered food? Are they able to breathe on their own? These are the basic requirements. And then as that baby gets a little older, there's a little bit more expected of them. You know, to the point where, okay, they need to start rolling over. They need to be able to sit up and hold their head. Imagine though that we stopped there. That was all that was expected of anybody for the rest of their developmental history, okay? You know, Bruce, you're 40 years old, but you can still roll over, good for you. That's all we expect out of you. You can coo, you can, you know, keep yourself warm, and you can eat food when it's offered to you. Great job, great job. That's all we, that'd be ridiculous. Eventually, a baby that only does that gets the critique, failure to thrive. We expect physical development to continue throughout our life, and we don't expect a three-year-old to act the same way as a six-year-old, but we do expect movement. And that's what the author is saying here. Where are you moving? And he is critiquing the Hebrew audience. The audience of this book is being critiqued for their failure to thrive. They walked through the door of grace and said, we have salvation, we're good. We're gonna stop here. We're not gonna continue to try and understand. We're not gonna continue to try and access God as mature believers. We're content with this base level access that we got. And there is so much more for us to pursue. This learning and growth also serves this personal purpose that it allows us to begin to distinguish good from evil. As mature believers, we grow and develop and we get to be better and better, or we should get better and better at that, that thing that the high priest struggled with. What is good? What is evil? Where do I need to be a little more open? Where do I need to be a little more rigid? But we oftentimes, I think, get the cart before the horse. We think we need to behave a certain way first to become part of God's community. This is in, this is out. And we think our job is to stand on the sidelines as Christians like an NFL referee calling penalties. That's in, that's out, and I'm gonna throw the flag whenever somebody crosses my lines. And we need to start with ourselves. And we get it backwards. Romans 12, two, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, talking internally by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Our goal in judging between good and evil is not to stand on the sidelines. It's to be able to look at ourselves first and say, where am I not pursuing God as a mature believer? Where am I getting too far in front of where I should be? And then to look around and say, where do I need to call out things in others and in the world? But where do I need to make sure that I'm keeping the doors of the temple open to those who would find God and not expecting them to be at the spot I'm at yet? Now, I'm not going to tolerate them sitting there where they are, but as they come in as a new believer, I'm not going to look at that infant believer and say, why are you not running when they haven't even learned how to roll over? But I'm going to walk along with them as I walk and pursue God, and I'm going to try and pull them along as we all pursue God together. 
We must continue to dig into God's word. We must be open to new ideas. We must be open to new and different experiences where God might be calling out something new and calling out something that we before have said, I'm not sure that's okay. But we trust that God is in control. So this week, as we look at our lives and walk with the Lord, we need to ask as a mature believer, where have I not pushed in enough? Where have I not investigated enough? Where have I just ruled something out because I don't like it and it makes me uncomfortable? And where might God be asking me to push in and take the next step in my personal walk? To go, this is deep theology, but I need to push into it. Because if I want to be pursuing God, I know I can't stay stagnant anywhere. I'm constantly pushing to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing. And where in humility do I need to remind myself that I do not have it all right? And if I don't have it right, if I know, if I know at somewhere I'm wrong and I just don't know where, otherwise I'd change it, then maybe I need to have some humility with somebody who has a different perspective. To look at them and say, they might be wrong and I might be wrong, but we can pursue God together. And so let's engage in that conversation, engage in that dialogue. So let's look this week, starting with ourselves, to go, where do I need to open myself up? And in humility, acknowledge that Jesus Christ has made my access to God perfect. And I need to take advantage of that. So would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you that we have this new unlimited access to you. God, we no longer have to go through an intermediary. God, we no longer have to have somebody else stand in the gap for us because we have you. So Lord, help us remember that it's not up to us, it's up to you. And so God, can we in humility continue to pursue holiness, God, that we can take the next step, whatever it is, to become more and more like you. God, to not stay stagnant where we are and to not expect other people to be where we are. But God, to walk that path together wherever we're at, to take that next step. And God, I confess that for me, there are times where I'm too quick to throw the flag. That's out. That's in. This is okay, God. So Lord, would you forgive me of the times where I have called out things where you have been moving, God? And would you forgive me for the times where I have not said something that should have been said. Lord, give me and give us as a church the wisdom to engage in the culture of this world, but God, give us also the wisdom to engage in how you're moving in our own lives. I pray this in your name, amen. Before we end this morning, just a couple of, of real quick things to bring to everybody's attention. Um, we do have upstairs through the remodel a bunch of office supplies. Uh, if you're looking to take some of those home, uh, go up there and check it out, see what we have. If you can use it before we just get rid of it, um, I would encourage you to go look at that. This Wednesday, as we talk about pushing into things, pushing into new things, maybe new ways to encounter and experience God, we are doing Ash Wednesday this Wednesday um, as part of our Wednesday night dinner. Um, come check that out as, as a way to kind of engage in our larger church history and community um, as we come into, come into Lent and Easter. Um, also today, 
Uh, we have, Craig has some donuts upstairs. Uh, if you're interested in having a conversation about the emergency response team, I would encourage you to go up there and talk to Craig about that. I would also encourage you, sorry, I know this is a lot, to mark your calendars for the game feed coming up. That's a great opportunity as we talk about opening the church up to new people coming in. That is a great opportunity to invite people in where they will hear the gospel and have an opportunity to respond. So um, I would encourage you to put all of those on your calendar. That was a lot. Uh, I know that. Um, please check your email for more information on any of those or talk to us after the service. As we end this morning, we end with number six, verses 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Have a great week.